Hi there, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, the podcast of High Country News where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. Typically, we do this show in conjunction with KVNF, our uh, community radio station in Paonia, Colorado, but today we're doing a very special one coming from the broadcast booth of KWSB 91.1 FM. That's in Gunnison, Colorado, where I have two guests with me today to help talk about some bigger ideas for the American West. I'm here with John Hausdorfer, the executive director of the Center for Environment and Sustainability at Western Colorado University, and with David Rothman, the director of the graduate program of creative writing at Western Colorado University. Uh, I should also say that I am a student of that uh, creative writing program. So just in full disclosure, if I grill Dr. Rothman too hard, he's going to flunk me. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, John Hausdorfer, welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. And Dr. Rothman, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. So we're here because you both have edited books, and we're going to talk a little bit about these two books. One is called Wildness, and that's edited by you, John, and also Gavin Van Horn. And then we're also going to talk about another book about a poet named Bell Turnbull, on the Life and Work of American Master. This is part of an Unsung Masters series, and this was edited by you, Dr. Rothman, and Jeffrey R. Valines. First of all, let's just talk about these books real quick. We'll start with you, John. What is this book, Wildness, and why did you think it was important to put together? Yeah, thanks. My co-editor, Gavin Van Horn, first approached me because he really felt strongly that we needed to look at a spectrum of wildness across different kinds of landscape. We're both passionate about wilderness areas, designated wilderness land where we zone to keep industrial activity out to enhance biodiversity and the possibility of human solitude and connection with, with nature. But we also felt that there was a kind of wild process that didn't just happen in wilderness areas. And so this book explores a continuum of wildness from those wilderness areas all the way to inner city urban landscapes and communities. And with sort of working landscapes in between, ranching and farming communities. And what we found in common across the many essays in this book along that continuum was that wildness seems to reflect a kind of renewal in the landscape. So if you're looking at a you know, large-scale ecological system like Yellowstone, reintroducing wolves allows for that space to renew itself, mm-hmm. right? That the wolves will control the deer population or the elk population. They won't overgraze. The soil will be stable, and that place can renew itself all the way down to the urban end where communities that are restoring green areas or bringing local food to their community or enhancing habitat are themselves feeling a kind of renewal, you know, from the tough, difficult, alienating life of the inner city. So this is a basically a set of essays that, that sort of explores that spectrum. That spectrum, absolutely. And, and we find wildness as a kind of renewal across that spectrum. Okay. So let's hold that for a second. And David, let's talk a little bit about the poet Belle Turnbull. She's a Colorado poet, not very well known, but hopefully she'll become better known from this book. Tell us about her and, and her relationship to the Colorado Rockies. It's complex. She lived from 1881 to 1970. She was born in Hamilton, New York moved out here in about 1890 when her father became the principal of the Colorado Springs High School, and she spent the rest of her life here, except that she went east to go to Vassar and then taught school for a few years in upstate New York, then came back and became the chair of the English department at the Colorado Springs High School, where her father had been principal. And all that time she was was writing poetry, but she really didn't come into her own as a poet until relatively late in her life, in her 50s 
when with her partner, her life partner, Helen Rich, she retired, and we know very little about her time when she was teaching, because she didn't keep any of the records, almost nothing. And they moved first to Frisco and then to a little cabin on French Street in Breckenridge. And while living there, she wrote, I think, what still stands as some of the best, if not the best, and certainly some of the first great poetry. Uh, she wrote a novel that, that's okay. Helen was a novelist and a good one. And their novels are all okay, but Bell's poetry is phenomenal. She began to write poetry about the high country while living in it, and also about the industry of mining. So she wrote about the flora, the fauna, the weather, the people, the industry, uh, the environment. And this body of work was, she won some prizes while she was alive, but like most poets, when she passed away, she had no heirs, she had no children, she was living way, way up in uh, the middle of nowhere, literally, in a cabin with no hot running water or uh, electricity. It like, was, like most poets today. Yeah, indeed. Uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> so she was sort of forgotten. You last weekend, Brian. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. She, so it was sort of forgotten until I stumbled across it, frankly, and uh, realized she was just a very, very special writer. Extraordinary. The best of the best of this place in that time, so that she rises far above being a regional writer, although she's very deeply rooted in this place. What was her relationship to the wild spaces of the Rockies? That's a really interesting question, because I've talked about her, as you know, as the first great poet of the American Alpine sublime, an Emersonian poet, very much so. And in spirit, just as her dates are the same, very similar to Robinson Jeffers, whom I wrote about in my essay for John's book. Oh, that's right. But, you um, his book, too. Yeah. Yeah, he does. He's everywhere. <laughs> I'm like air pollution. It's really a blessing and <laughs> yeah. a curse. Yeah, you're but, basically uh, like CO2. Her ability gas. to depict, and the way that she approaches depiction of wild places is really extraordinarily compressed and intense and poetically transcendent, and she approaches them as inarticulably, transcendentally sublime, as I said, in a very Emersonian way. As Gary Snyder says, she goes lightly and she knows the flowers. Well, this is interesting because you start to get into some competitive ideas, I think, almost in a way between these two books. If you sort of take the traditional transcendental sublime, which I think is very much an idea that is familiar to a lot of us and a lot of our listeners, but then you start to sort of take that apart and put it against some of these other ideas of wildness that are in this book. John, do you think that there are competing visions of what should be wild and beautiful, or do you think there's some way to sort of reconcile the views of a poet like Bill Turnbull with some of the views of the authors in this in newer book on wildness? I think they have been divisive ideas uh, or in conflict, and I think we have a responsibility to find how they unite. And so what I mean by how they have been in conflict is that in the past, the transcendental idea that drew me, by the way, from New Jersey to Colorado a quarter century ago, the connection with the sort of spaces where, quote, man is a visitor who does not remain, to quote the Wilderness Act, those spaces were transformative for me, right? But what our book explores in some of the essays, like Mistinget Smith from the Black Land Project or Michael Howard from the South Side of Chicago, as African Americans, they talk about how, you know, for them, when they see a tree or when their community sees a tree, they can't help but think about an ancestor being hanged. Or when they try to bring children to the woods, the families will push back and say, look, we left the South because what happened to us in the woods. Enrique Salmon's a Native American writer in here who says, there's no word for wild in my language. That's a colonialist term. You called our homeland wild so you could take it. Hmm. And so it's upsetting to me that the spaces that have been transformative for me are triggers of trauma for fellow humans from other cultural backgrounds. And so this book is trying to understand 
how can we move forward? How can we find some shared values between that transcendental tradition and this new wildness, which we're hoping to find and fight for kind of everywhere? And David, when we talk about the sublime, where's room for that to sort of move into other spaces that aren't just the avenues of poets or transcendentalists? Alfred North Whitehead once brilliantly said of Plato that you can tell he's a genius because wherever you go, you meet him on the way back. And so it is with the strongest poets. All of philosophy is but a footnote to Plato. Yeah. So, you know, you can say the same very often of the strongest poets. And I have been talking about Belle and her poems where she's out hiking somewhere and looking at the flowers and so on, or the mountains and the weather. But she's also a Georgic poet. She's very much a poet of work and human community. And she writes a great deal about miners and mining. And she's deeply aware of that human presence. And she really brings it all. And there's plenty of uncomfortable truths about the realities of mining in her work. And that's another very important part of her achievement. She really brings it all. Her first book, which she published when she was 60, is a verse novel called Gold Boat, which is very carefully based on historical research. And it, it's a, a story about a dredging, a gold dredging operation in a fictional town called Rocking Horse, which is based very closely on Breckenridge. Oh my gosh, she's deeply aware of all the financial chicanery, the industry, the violence that mining does in people's lives and to the landscape. So she really, she brings it all and, and she fuses it, you know, very, very, very powerfully. Again, although I think he was a stronger poet because he's one of the strongest, the comparison to Robinson Jeffers is apt because he's always thinking and talking about the complicated relationship between human beings and the landscape, which is filled with all sorts of contradictions, exactly as John points them out. Bell doesn't talk about those issues specifically, but she doesn't merely write about, you know, flowers and fluffy clouds. Far, far, far from it. Just like Wordsworth, frankly, who's deeply aware of history and of human communities and of politics and corruption and so on. Yeah, I think David's right in pointing to, you know, what Whitehead's talking about with understanding the roots of our ideas. And I think there's a way forward with the sublime here in that finding a new sublime. You know, for me, the sublime really means that combination of awe and fear, that feeling of being stuck in a lightning storm above tree line where you realize nature's yeah, indifferent yeah. to you and oh, you're yeah. small, right? And in that moment, yeah, you're, you're scared, but there's also this kind of beauty opens up. You know, Emerson would call that, I am nothing, I see all in those moments. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a kind of human sublime that's possible. I think we can become in awe of our ability to be co-creators of wildness. And there are essays in here in wildness that talk about, you know, the restoration of the prairie in a way that produces food and fuel while restoring the ecosystem function of that prairie. I'm in awe of my species being able to co-create that. And I think there's a kind of human sublime that can connect with the natural sublime. I, I think we need to move forward in finding those connections. Well, there's a traditional view of the sublime, which right. is that sort of fear and awe. You're the insignificance that that produces, and that, that right. is a very certain special kind of beauty. Right. There is sort of a Georgic or a pastoral kind of beauty that is described throughout many, many traditions and, and carries forward to this day in our literature. If you're just joining us, you're listening to West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert. I'm the editor-in-chief of High Country News. I'm here today in Gunnison, Colorado, at KWSB, talking with John Hausdorfer, the executive director of the Center for Environment and Sustainability, and David Rothman, director of the graduate program of creative writing, both at Western Colorado University. And today we're talking about the wildness, the American sublime, and a lot of other things. 
I'm wondering what good is the sublime these days when we're overwhelmed by so many other things? So where does the the idea of sublime fit with what I think is an anthropocentric fear right now, a fear machine that's run up. We've got climate change and, and, and population and, and species loss. There are so many things that are cranking right now that are sort of getting in the way of people's appreciation of the sublime in one way or arts in the other way, or really just focused on human sustainability. So where do we find a use for the sublime in that context? Well, you know, Bell's a great poet, but I would look more to Jeffers, who's an even greater poet, as I discuss in John's book. Jeffers probably articulates these ideas as powerfully and forcefully and as one of the first people ever to articulate them a hundred years ago. And his response was, there's nothing new here. The apocalypse is nothing new. And uh, if you read a poem like uh, Shine Perishing Republic, he says, you know, this is the way it's always been. Human beings destroy themselves. They create terrible and terrifying political realities. The 20th century was not exactly, you know, a placid stream. As far as this goes, we used nuclear weapons. We had wars and genocides that killed scores of millions of people. And so the current moment is, of course, serious, and we face tremendous challenges. But much of this has been foreseen. So the sublime as such, as a not necessarily that everyone must contemplate it, but as a philosophical, aesthetic, artistic, creative response to our lives, it doesn't have to be an absolute. It has its place. The response to beauty, I would be suspicious of any ideology that would suggest that there's no place for that in human life or wouldn't make a place for it in and of itself. That doesn't mean it should dominate other things, but it certainly has a place in the lives of human beings and always should. That's the beginning of an answer. Well, I would, David, I would add to your point about beauty and add humility. You know, I think we need a strong dose of humility wherever we can find it. So if for some of us that comes from the sublime, so be it. But we're looking at a society in which I forget the average minutes per day a child spends outside in America, but it's decreasing. It's <laughs> under a half hour, I think, the amount of screen time they have. And so where is humility going to come from if they have so much control over their world that with that little screen they can access any information ever known by us? And so where is humility going to come from? If you don't mind, I'd like to share just a small piece Absolutely. from Wildness <clears throat> uh, from Robert Michael Pyle. And I think this gets at how the sublime can help us with a dose of humility in taking on these issues. Poet Robert Michael Pyle, who was originally a biologist, says, uh, On a recent trip to the Scottish Highlands, my friend and I came to a place called Borgie Glen. Standing there gazing off into the high purple heather hills, we noticed a small sign pointing toward a dark forest of Scots pine deep in a receding crease of the Cairngorms. The unknown, it read. And there I realized that's what I most want out of this slippery word, wild. I don't want to live in a world become so relative that the unknown itself is extinct. We need that unknown. And I guess I would join into that conversation as you know, I'm so drawn to poetry because the language is so powerful, and I think these words cast a very long shadow, as I say in the book. And this is just a few lines that are the close from Robinson Jeffers' poem, The Answer, which provides phrases that have become well-known in the culture, not man apart, for example, where Jeffers is responding to how to deal with the incredible suffering he sees going on in the middle of the 20th century in the world. And he says, uh, integrity is wholeness. The greatest beauty is organic wholeness, the wholeness of life and things, the divine beauty of the universe. Love that, not man, line break, apart from that, or else you will share man's pitiful confusions or drown in despairs when his days darken. 
And what he's getting at there with that cunning line break is don't become a misanthropist. It seems as first that he's saying, love that, not man. But then he says, love that wholeness of the entire universe, which includes the wild and the presumably not wild. And he says, love that, not man, apart from that. And that's the humility. That's exactly the humility that he's talking about. He's the first writer, the first human being, as far as I know, to have an intergalactic consciousness of the scope of human beings as being smaller than dust. Right. So it seems to me like one of the problems that we're facing, I think, as a a society or a culture is that we feel like we need to exhibit more and more control because we're seeing things get worse and worse, for lack of a better word. So we're seeing things ramp up. We're seeing danger ahead. And so the impulse, I think, of a lot of humans is more control. Mm -hmm. And the argument for letting go or having less control is losing ground somehow, I think. Or I wonder whether you feel that way. Well, I think uh, actually one of my colleagues in the master's program here at Western, Melanie Armstrong, just came out with a book called Environmental Realism, in which she critiques the whole notion of environmental solutions as another form of, you know, control, and she wants to replace that with environmental actions, that there are certain things we can't control, but we can control whether or not we act, right? We can't necessarily solve it. These are not necessarily problems to fix, right? Like David said, these go back centuries, right? These these sort of notions of violence and othering and and how that justifies, you know, hateful behavior toward human and non-human. We can solve that. That's something to fix, Mm-hmm. I think, like, fuels our need to control, you know, so I think she has an important critique there. That's uh, true. I mean, we can't even fix higher ed. How are we going to fix all of the human all, place all, in the universe? The human place in the universe or, <laughs> or the, even, you know, the ecology of the planet. I think Jeffers' response, and I keep returning to him in this conversation, is the universe is going to be okay. There are, as Carl Sagan would say, thousands of galaxies. And we are on a tiny infinitesimal speck floating in that. And that galactic consciousness is powerful. It brings tremendous humility, which doesn't mean we shouldn't try to address the problems that we can, absolutely. Questions of justice and questions of, for that matter, questions of how to zone wilderness and what it is. Of course, these questions are tremendously important. However, I'm gonna suggest something philosophical here that may be, I hope it rubs listeners in a provocative way. It might do that um, to me already. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Do that to me already. <laughs> For those of you not in the studio, everyone's in here with their arms crossed in a very <laughs> defensive <laughs> position. <I'm on. laughs> All right, here we go. Apocalyptic rhetoric itself has a long history. And, of course, the great virtue of apocalyptic rhetoric for those who espouse it is it makes their own lives feel more significant. Because if you are the one who is in possession of the knowledge of the coming apocalypse, then you appear to feel that you can do something gives you a lot more a feeling of control, even if it's the apocalypse, than simply saying, I don't know what's going on, or that's very difficult and uh, confusing, and who knows what the answers are. When environmental or ecological or philosophical rhetoric or political rhetoric becomes apocalyptic, I tend to uh, want to take a rain check, because I think it can actually lead to rather the justification of extraordinarily counterproductive, even destructive, or dangerous kinds of actions, both in policy and in fact. And we should be careful about apocalyptic rhetoric. There are many problems that we face. We should work as hard as we can to address them and to solve them. But the universe is going to be okay. It's probably a kind of an error to lapse into fully apocalyptic rhetoric. David, I guess I would only challenge that in the sense that we're a species that loves cop-outs. And so when we say the universe is going to be okay, it helps us let ourselves off the hook. And, and well, I'm not suggesting that at all. And secondly, 
I agree with you that the apocalyptic rhetoric has not taken the macro environmental movement very far. In fact, it makes it look like religious ideology and taps into those traditions. <laughs> okay. But it's not just apocalyptic rhetoric. There is apocalyptic reality that people are living out right now. You and I are speaking from positions of privilege where right now, right, Puerto Rico, right, people being pushed out of their homeland because of, you know, climate disturbance. But that's apocalyptic reality. No, it's so, not. So how do you assure it? For people it, that aren't a, in our positions of privilege, there are, Vandana Shiva in her essay in Wildness talks about 250,000 farmers committing suicide in India in the last 20 years. They're living apocalypse. So what rhetoric should we use if there is actually apocalyptic reality for people in those positions? I think there's a significant difference between a disaster and the apocalypse. The apocalypse is literally a quarter million suicides. It's a religious term, and it leads to very, very dangerous ideological response. And I really think there is a difference, and I think it really does matter what terms we use. Absolutely, it's a disaster. Absolutely, it's a crisis. But it is not the apocalypse. That is explicitly religious rhetoric, and we should be very, very careful with That's it. It's fair. highly flammable well, and we highly can't, inflammatory. We can't write off the reality by calling it just I rhetoric. would never suggest that. Right. Okay, good. All of these positions are rhetorical positions. I suggest a different rhetorical position. Mm-hmm. I'm not using the term rhetoric in a dismissive way. I I'm see. only saying I don't particularly care for that rhetoric because I think it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It leads to certain justifications, for example, where the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very dangerous. The, the situations you're describing are incredibly serious. I take them seriously. No, but you're right. We saw eco-fascism mm-hmm. in Germany in the 30s. And that was right. They used well, environmental... We saw fascism in Germany. But they in also the used arguments of environmental apocalypse to justify blood and soil. So Absolutely. I, I get where you're... Thank you for clarifying that. So yeah. I'm suggesting a different rhetorical mm-hmm. approach. I think the things you're talking about are disasters. <laughs> and they're very serious. I don't take them any less seriously than, than you do. But... We need to be yeah. deliberate about how we respond to the best of our ability. How can wild ideas of wildness or the sublime that come out of the American Alpine where we are, where can we plug in to either the rhetoric or the politics or even the aesthetics? or Sort of where does the American Alpine sublime come in? Well, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. And, you know, for me, wildness is about renewal, right? And I think that that's been the tradition of the sublime. John Muir in the top of a tree in the middle of a lightning storm saying he wants to drink sequoia blood right he's been <laughs> he's being yeah. recharged by that renewed you know and what michael howard's doing in the south side of chicago is really renewing people's healing helping them heal from that trauma with the land that comes from you know legacies of, of jim crow and, and slavery or courtney white moving cattle around or joel salatin moving cattle around a certain way that renews grasslands and also renews the ability of a farmer to stay on the land or a rancher to stay on the land. Renewal, renewal, renewal. Where do poets and beauty fit into the okay. idea of renewal? So I'm going to respond first to your first question. And I think the single most important thing we can do as educators and as writers is to teach people how to read and teach them how to read really, really well. This is not a trivial thing. It's one of the hardest things human beings learn how to do, to read analytically and think critically. And we are not doing a very good job of it for all sorts of reasons that have to do with policy and culture and history. And we need to teach people how to read so that they can think for themselves about all of these issues, about beauty, about the sublime, about politics, about policy, about history, so that they can actually join the conversation in a responsible way. And when I go through this kind of stuff with my more advanced students, I often, you know, talk about the Declaration of Independence. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. 
All men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Most people tend to forget that it's an inalienable right. They just gloss over it because they've heard it so many times, that the pursuit of happiness is an inalienable right. Well, that ties into renewal. It does, because how can you possibly pursue happiness if you're not having a meaningful conversation in your society about what it is? And as soon as you ask a question like, what is happiness? Welcome to the liberal arts. I don't know how you're going to answer that in a chemistry class, although chemistry class is important. So what I would say is that if the place that the sublime and wildness play, among many, many other important issues that have come up here, politics and history, for example, justice, they have to do with the fact that we have to be able to think about these clearly, and that means educating people to be thought leaders and responsible citizens and people who are capable of actually having that conversation so that we keep that conversation alive in a meaningful way. So that would be the beginning of my response. You know, and one of the things I liked about when you're talking about pursuit of happiness, you sparked my thinking. Robin Kimmerer is a very powerful, you know, Potawatomi author who's, who's in wildness. She just visited our campus and she talked about kinship, living in kinship networks with more than human beings. And Gavin Van Horn, my co-editor, originally wanted to call this the relative wild, meaning our relative. Wild is our relative. And if we're in these kinship networks with more than human beings, and if wildness is our relative, then we're also responsible for the pursuit of a larger happiness, a pursuit of a more than human happiness that both provides ecological services to us for human good, but also it reduces suffering in the universe for more than humans. And so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how pursuit of happiness and wildness intersect. If there's a more than human pursuit of happiness that we're responsible for to the natural world, or if you see happiness as a very human thing. Well, in the document we're talking about, it's certainly seen as oh yeah, certainly a, in the a human a human action. But we're not only involved in uh, uh, webs of kinship, but also in webs of elective affiliation, mm -hmm. where we choose what we wish to do and who we wish to affiliate with and why. And that's a crucial distinction for our politics, for any democratic politics, it seems to me. So to answer your question, I, I think that in the short time that we have, I'd say, the mo again, the most important thing is that we enable as many people as possible actually to know what that question means. I'm not dodging the question, mm -hmm. but there, um, from How what would I... How Jeffers respond? I think he's neutral and... He wishes simply to get people to turn away from themselves and from politics to contemplate the transhuman magnificence, as he put it. I think we're going to have to stop there to contemplate the transhuman magnificent of David as we no, understand of, of the universe of, 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 of all of us here. Yeah, well, I think we should wrap up here. I really appreciate the sort of beginning of a conversation. I think if you want to learn more about either of these books, you can visit our website at hcn.org. If you want to continue this conversation online, you can do that at kvnf.org. I want to thank once again KWSB at 91.1. You can learn more about them at kwsb.org. John Hausdorfer, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. David Rothman, thank you very much. I love you guys. <laughs> we love you too. I just want to thank you all once again for listening. For West Obsessed, I'm Brian Calvert, the editor-in-chief of High Country News.